Welcome to Sard's podcast, Sardisms. I'm Mariah Young, and today I'm with Kevin Monk, Managing Director of Sard. We both love great technology coupled with great customer service. The main aim of Sard is to help improve the NHS, England's public health service. Healthcare and IT are ever-changing, and we are interested in the ways that we can help it evolve with the growing population. In this episode, we bring the discussion into the world of medical training. Kent and Medway Medical School, also known as KMMS, is the newest educational facility in East Kent. Dr. Chris Holland, founding dean of KMMS, and Professor Deborah Taus, who leads the Faculty of Medicine, Health, and Social Care at Christ Church University in Canterbury, joins us to discuss the future of medicine and what it could mean for the local area in East Kent. Welcome. So if you just want to start by telling me your experiences in academia and medicine and how you're both connected to KMMS. So I am a, uh, an advanced neonatal nurse practitioner by background. So um, I actually trained as a nurse in Kent many years ago uh, and then have worked across the NHS um, in various parts of the country and abroad for around 20 years before I first came into uh, the university my specialists um, areas neonatal intensive care, uh, which at the time I started my career was uh, really going through a, um, a, an embryonic phase, really, in the, as a specialist field. Um, it's around caring for very sick, uh, premature newborn infants and their families, families and, and it was hugely challenging um, and sometimes uh, left you know, was was hugely life limiting as well. So that was mm. that was a really um, sound grounding in NHS practice. And then I was really fortunate to become one of the first um, postgraduate qualified advanced neonatal nurse practitioners in the country. Um, and I worked on the medical rotor in the neonatal intensive care unit, um, delivering holistic nursing and medical interventions. Um, so really, that was my first tie, if you like, into medicine. Um, and then after that, I moved very slowly into the academic world, um, sharing my learning and experiences through uh, visiting guest lecturers, then le- lecturers post, and then finally moving into a full-time academic post in around 2005 at Christchurch. Um, and this is where I've spent most most of my career um, as an academic, um, very happily. Uh, I've moved from a lecturer practitioner to senior lecturer, head of school dean, and now I am the Pro Vice Chancellor for Medical Education Development at Christchurch. And my connection to KMMS um, was probably at its genesis. So um, I actually co-wrote the bid on behalf of the two universities to gain us the medical school student places. Um, and my current role is that I remain the Christchurch lead for the development and the operationalization of the joint university par- partnership. And KMMS is uh, an affiliate school within the faculty, which I lead at Christchurch. So I have a very close working relationship with Chris, as you might imagine. Yeah. Well, that's great. <laughs> it, as residents of, well, I'm a resident of Whitstable, Mariah's in Canterbury there. So First off, can I just say thank you that you've started this school because I feel like we're going to be one of the key beneficiaries of of the school when it's it's up and running. And uh, I've got no intention of moving out of the area. About half of our company is lives in East Kent. Um, so I'm sure we will get onto this, but the impact on the local area it's going to be huge. And the fact that you were the person who wrote the bid. I co-wrote. Co-wrote. <laughs> co-wrote the bid. 
and that you got this process started. Big thank you from from me and everyone else and all my friends that will hopefully benefit from it in the future. So well done, guys. Thanks for that. And you missed out, I think, maybe the NBC suit because I was doing some reading up <laughs> and you had the NBC <laughs> suit and a time in the Brecon Beacons. You you omitted that from your career history. I did. I did. I was that was entirely relevant but I mean it, it was a it was a wonderful time so yes I I was a um uh, an officer in the Territorial Army Queen Alexander's Royal Army Nursing Service and I and and um and as you said spent many happy hours climbing through sewage pipes in Brecon Beacons in full NBC suits it was a life changing experience oh, I can imagine it's a shared experience I I used to work for def, the defense science and technology laboratories DSTL what was yeah. previously Dera and I spent quite a lot of time in that NBC suit as well being being gassed by a very lovely lady down in Portland down oh, who yes. encouraged me to not nod my head up and down she looked like sort of like my friend's mum or something it was a very strange experience to be gassed by her oh, yes. and uh and chasing um, very fit and able um, people who hang around in the Brecon Beacons, let's put it that way, chasing them around a bunch of geeks who essentially their bodies were just things to carry their brains around. And uh, you know, the juxtaposition of these fine athletes who had full mastery of their their bodies and us geeks who really didn't <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was a sight to behold. So we got a shared history there. Okay, that's that's helpful. Thank you. I feel better for knowing that now. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris, I'm the finding dean of the medical school, and um, uh, I'm still saying that it's the best job in the world. Um, I'm just over my two year anniversary. I started at the beginning of um, August 2018. Sorry, no, the end of August, the beginning of September 2018. Before that, um, I was uh, an anaesthetic and ITU trainee uh, in Southeast Thames. And during that, I had the benefit of mentorship from a very senior and experienced uh, postgraduate uh, training director. And she let me do two things. Um, uh, that were added on to my standard training. She let me train in intensive care, um, which uh, was a year out, was counted as a year out of training. And normally you're only allowed one year out of training. But when I said I was interested in education as well, she let me take another year out of training to go and be an education fellow. And I was um, an education fellow in the simulation centre at Barts and the London Hospital which was well established then, but which was one of the very first simulation centers in London, in fact, in the country. Um, during that time I started and then shortly after finished a master's. And so um, when I got a job as a consultant in intensive care at King's College Hospital, uh, I wanted to put my master's to use. And I became involved first with the faculty development unit at King's um, where I set up a master's in uh, education it's now the biggest master's program in the university. Um, and then I moved into the medical school. I started out as deputy head of year three. Um, about two months after I started that post, the head of year three took early retirement. He didn't quite say I was waiting for you to get your knees under the table and then I was out of here, but that's what it felt like. Um, so I became head of year three and then King's um, embarked on a process of um, quite quite significant program renewal 
And at the, by the end of that, I'd um, been one of three people who had led that, and I'd led the, quite the biggest piece of work in that around the clinical parts of the program, and I was a deputy dean at King's. Around about that time, it was clear that there were going to be some new medical schools. Jeremy Hunt had announced it at the Tory party conference in 2016. And so I went to the University of Surrey, um, where they were preparing a bid um, that was eventually ended up being a direct competitor with Deborah and Peter's bid at Christchurch. The bid at Surrey wasn't successful, but it was very useful experience. And on the back of that experience um, and through a prior meeting that I'd had with Deborah, um, um, even before I went to Surrey, when I was still at King's, um, I knew about the school at KMMS and um, uh, uh, applied for and was appointed. I've moved my clinical practice down to um, uh, Kenton Medway as well. So I stopped being a consultant at King's, where I'd been an ITU consultant for about 10 years, and I arrived at Maidstone six months before COVID. Uh, happened and I spent most of Easter working two and a half jobs with all of the extra time uh, being an ITU consultant there and getting the medical school open. One of the things that I'm really excited about the Kent Medical School and one of the reasons that we sort of wanted to support it as our charity of the year. I, I went to Southampton University and there was a medical school there um, I did electronics and computer science there, but you know I've got a lot of friends who were in the medical school there and still do to this day. She's a GP down in Bournemouth. She's not from Bournemouth, and she's not from from Hampshire or Dorset, and she's come from from a different area of sort of South London. Um, but the reason she's there essentially is because there was a medical school in Southampton and so her and many of my friends and I went to a 40th birthday party there not long ago and it was packed full of um, doctors who had trained at Southampton and then just stayed in the area because it's where they went to university they settled in Bournemouth they got family there that seems to happen with medical schools right I think I think it happens. It does happen with medical schools, and, and I know that Chris can say more about that. But I think also it happens just generally with university education. So you know, I can speak from personal experience here in in terms of both my children went to universities away from Kent, um, and they have both ended up living in very close proximity to their university um, and very happily very happily to do so and I think you know it is actually an accepted um, part of that university experience that you know you you do move away from home you generate a new set of friends you become embedded you get a different identity um, and if you are able to gain local employment clearly um, that actually that's a real bonus and that, I think you know in terms of the university education more more widely that the focus on the ability to translate your university education into active employment is now much more firmly embedded into many many university courses so you actually create links in your local area you actually have industry experiences in your local area and, and that I think all builds towards um you staying in that area I think with medicine that's probably more acute so yeah it's 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 um it's really interesting and it's one of those 
phenomena that when you look at it, you see two extremes. So there's there's a there's a slightly apocryphal anecdote in medical education called the 60-20-20 rule, which is that 60% of your medical graduates stay within 20 miles of their university um, for 20 years after graduation. Um, it's one of those things, it's memorable because it trips off the tongue so easily. And I did go looking once um, for the original research um, that justified it. And the best that I can find is that it was a single study done in Scandinavia. But it does seem to have been replicated or observed to be similar in um, particularly in Australia and Canada. And the thing, the thing that's similar about all of those areas is that they're really big areas with large tracts of not much and certainly not many people within highly centralized population um, zones. And, you know, for that reason, you know, if you're if you live in Australia and you go to university in Perth, unless you want to change three time zones and go back to Sydney, you're going to stay in Western Australia. Um, however, um, there's a really interesting graphic that was published um, by the RCGP, which we show a lot at outreach events, um, looking at doctor patient ratios for the, all of England. It was an England only study. And certainly when you look around the southeast of England and London, you'll see that we have really, really poor um, doctor patient ratios with our GPs in Kent and Medway regularly having patient list sizes of over two and a half thousand. And the RCGP says that you should only have 1,800 patients on your list to be an averagely busy GP or a safely busy GP. And in fact, in Kenton Medway, we have um, three uh, of the worst districts for GP patient ratios, um, uh, uh, one of which is um, um, Swale. Um, the, 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 however, when you look at that map and you look at East Sussex, East Sussex really stands out as having one of the better doctor to patient ratios. Guess what? They got a new medical school 15 years mm -hmm. ago. So, you know, they're, they're, again, when you, look, when you look purely at observational data, there does seem to be some truth to it. Um, the, however, as I say, we, we do have extremes. So I graduated from Queens within two, in Belfast within two years of graduation. I'd gone to Australia. And then when I came back to the UK, I came back to the southeast of England and I've stayed in the southeast of England. So it's not going to be 100 2020. It's always going to be 60 2020. That's it. It's good that there's some science backing up <laughs> what, what to me was just anecdotal it's certainly something that i've said to friends and relatives and neighbors this medical school is a huge boon for the area much more than, than people appreciate the 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 long-term impact of it i think the the fallout of of having a medical school here is is huge and well i mean I mean, the, the, the actuaries have hard financial data for what a medical for what a single medical student represents to the local economy. And we, you know, with doctors in healthcare, we should always look much more than at just the pounds, shillings, and pence. But it is an easy thing to measure. So medical students 
um, they're, they're on what are called high tariff courses. So they don't just bring five, or sorry, they don't just bring 9,000 pounds a year to the universities. They bring in about another 11,000 to 15,000 pounds a year and through what's called the added tariff. And that's per year. And then over the course of five years, they bring in another 101,000 pounds each in the form of payments that are made to pay for their clinical placement. And that's before you get onto the stage that actually they live here for five years, they pay rent, they shop in supermarkets. When we don't have a pandemic, they go out and socialize. And we have brought in some international students as well. And an international student over the course of five years, because they pay higher fees and they tend to come from um, better off socioeconomic backgrounds, they bring a million pounds into the local economy each over the course of five years. And that's, you know, that is quantified by the Society of Actuaries. So the medical school is costing a lot of money. You know, it is, it is very expensive to set up, but just as an engine of the economy, just having the medical students will keep bringing that income into the area forever now. Oh, we've, we've benefited hugely from the computer science school. Here, for example, we've had a number of computer science graduates come in. They're working, um, you know, a guy called Pedro who's from Portugal. We've got Jordan who's been doing a lot of our interoperability and API work here. And uh, when I'm actually sat right now in the Innovation Centre on the University of Kent campus. And it, so the, the, the actuarial study is obviously the, the, the financial benefits you can get those sort of benefits that we've had from the computer science department are you know they're secondary they're they're, they're not directly no one's going to put that in a spreadsheet and uh, record that as a financial benefit but it has been huge to us yeah i think that's some of the um, the drivers for you know the expansion of the university education in the last 20 years for instance the um the, the development that all three universities um engaged in in relation to the medway campus you know that it is universities are part of a regeneration um approach that are, that is really very very financially valid so yeah and medical school actually is a massive um, bonus to that and we are sorry i mean this this this, this is really important um, aspect of the medical school uh, and because for example um, uh, if you look at some of the reorganizations of care in kenton medway so we've got the advent of the stroke facilities the hyperacute stroke units in dartford maidstone and east kent now, in order to provide that service, which oh, when we get to the end of the when we get to the end of the service reorganisation process, it definitely will make care better for people who have strokes in Kenton Medway. But one of the things that we will need to do is to increase the number of stroke consultants. And I had a conversation with East Kent Trust yesterday about creating new posts that will not just be stroke consultant, they'll be stroke consultant, teacher, educator, researcher within the medical school. Now East Kent has been trying to fill two stroke consultant posts for five years now and has not been able to attract people into the area. And we're already seeing evidence that actually by, 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 by blending a post and adding in opportunities to teach or do research, it does make the posts more attractive. 
you know, I brought my clinical ITU sessions from, from an ivory tower in London down to Kent and Medway. The medical school is making a difference to this human medical workforce issue, even before we've graduated a single yeah, doctor. That's wonderful. Yeah, which, which is really, really good to see because actually, you know, when, when we were writing the bid and, and the one other person I should mention, you heard um, Chris talk about Peter, Peter Nichols, Dr. Peter Nichols, who was uh, the, the key Kent contributor for, for, for the um, partnership. When we were writing that, we were um, thinking and exploring about the potential. Um, and these things were actually in our bid. So actually it's hugely um Gratifying. I'm not quite sure if that is the right word, but it, it is. It is phenomenal to already see some of the changes that we, if you like, predicted and hoped for, um, making a difference, uh, actually already um, taking place. So you know, it, as Chris has said, you know, there are a number of organisations across Kent where they have attracted senior people's into into posts. Because of the presence of the medical school, uh, we're now benefiting from a number of those individuals actually working directly with us in the medical school. So it is, you know, it's drawing knowledge into this area, um, you know, and it's our, our job now to, to really deliver on that going forward for the entire population of Kent and Medway. What makes the Kent and Medway Medical School different? What attracts people to go specifically to that one? I think I, I think that the standout thing that makes us different is the fact that we're a collaboration between two universities. And there are only two other medical schools in the country that are collaborations. Um, Hull York Medical School and Brighton and Sussex Medical School. And Brighton and Sussex is very important to us because they're what's called our contingency school. They're, they They support us. Uh, in the process up to our first pioneer group of students graduating. And that support and friendship is invaluable. Now, what does it mean to be a partner medical school? Well, apart from the fact that I um, have two vice chancellors to ease through the birthing process, um, uh, it's actually, it is, it is, and, and, and it presents a unique set of challenges that, that, you know, you can't get away from that. But what it does is it gives richness and it gives breadth. And we're absolutely clear that interprofessionalism is at the heart of um, KMMS. So Deborah's background in neonatal critical care, the fact that um, at a you know at, at a really early stage um, of the conceptualization of what interprofessionalism meant, Deborah was actually working as a nurse on a medical rota. I mean, that was, you know, that, that, that's still relatively unheard of. Critical care it is, is elementally interprofessional. You know, mm -hmm. I can't do a ward round without uh, contributions from nurses, pharmacists, therapists, social workers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, much, much more than I would dare to say almost everywhere else, except possibly GP. GP is also elementally interprofessional at the, um, at the moment. And um, But for us, interprofessionalism, whilst health is, of course, first and foremost, interprofessionalism means so much more than that. It means business. It means enterprise. It means digital. It means engineering. And across the breadth of two universities, we have that opportunity to really give our medical students a 21st century enlightenment experience. So we've got tracks in our program themes that run throughout all five years, 
for example, leadership and management. And that's very ably led for us and championed for us by uh, Richard Patey, who's a pediatrician in Medway. Um, at the end of this process, students will come out and they'll have a tangible recognized qualification in healthcare leadership and management over and above their core medical degree. We've already started teaching that. So when we sat down some first years in a seminar and said, right, we're going to talk about leadership, some of them were like, I'm first year. Why, why do I need to know about leadership? By the end of the session, they were like, I get it. You know, I absolutely get leadership. Leadership is like, you know, it's not, not that anyone would necessarily say it's, it's Donald Trump, but it, it's not someone sitting in the White House telling everyone what to do. Leadership is leadership and followership. It's team membership. It's team members as being active members in a team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what we're really trying to do is to make sure that our students, when they graduate, they're not just respectful of the input of other health professions when they make it on a wardrobe, but they also elementally understand that if you're going to have a transformative effect on a system, such as a healthcare system, a highly complicated reactive health system, then you need to understand some stuff that is not part of conventional medical education. That's really good. I think leadership especially is something that a lot of people could learn from, not just in the medical world. One of my favorite um, sort of lessons on leadership is actually a guy called uh, David Marquette, who's uh, who was a U.S. Navy submarine operator. I don't know if you've ever seen this this video, um, but it, uh, we'll put we'll put some links to it. But essentially, he ended up on this submarine. Um, and he had didn't have a clue how the the submarine operated or or how it worked, and his approach was essentially to communicate intent down to all of the people on the submarine what he wanted, and and it was a sh the the main part of leadership. He said, you know, people see you as a submarine commander, you know, you should you should sound like Russell Crowe and be barking orders, you know, let full steam ahead, you know, fill it such five and three quarters 180 degrees to blah you know and, and just shouting all these things and he said that at some points he'd be like you know third engine at three quarters and they'd say uh sorry sir we we don't have a third engine there's only two engines on it you know so he was it, people have this very misconstrued idea of leadership that it's about knowing knowing everything and commanding orders down and it's great to hear that this this other form of leadership, which is about communicating intent and getting people to work together, is being being pushed uh, at such an early stage in people's mm. degree. Um, which actually leads me on to a question: Given there is a new medical school, it has it been an opportunity to kind of revisit? what the syllabus for a medical degree should be do you do you have much autonomy to re rethink um you, obviously as a tech company tech is a is a factor in a in a doctor's life now more so than perhaps it would have been in the past um did, did you revisit the curriculum so we have we have um fairly tight constraints um, which are for good reason. So um, if you want to open a medical school in the United Kingdom, ultimately you need to satisfy the regulator, the General Medical Council. 
And the General Medical Council is all about putting patients first. The General Medical Council is there to make sure that the profession of medicine keeps patients safe. And when it comes to undergraduate medical education, they have set a very, very high level, but specified curriculum, uh, which is defined in a document called Tomorrow's Doctors. And in the various iterations of Tomorrow's Doctors that we've had over the course of about, I don't know, 15 years, we've gone from uh, an era of medical education when curricula really specified what you needed to know, pure, pure uh, um, molecules, if you like, of knowledge. Know that the liver is here. Know that this is the nervous supply to the little toe. Know that this is the Krebs cycle, which is a biochemical pathway that's critical for nutrition and energy, energy production, et cetera, et cetera. And being, being nice, being kind, being empathic, being a good communicator, being a good team worker, they were there, but they were, they, they were kind of an afterthought. And in the latest edition of Tomorrow's Doctors, that has been completely turned on its head. Um, because I don't, I, I, I almost don't need to teach students any facts anymore. You know, facts are redundant. Facts are on the internet. If you have a smartphone, you can get access to more facts than, than all the lecturers and professors in Harvard Medical School could give you. But we do need to make sure not just that people know how to access those facts and work out that the anti-vaxxer page on Facebook is not the same as a peer-reviewed um, meta-analysis on the New England Journal of Medicine. Of course, that's a given. But actually, we need to spend a lot of time focusing on that person-centeredness, that interprofessionalism. Those They're often called softer values, but they're the hardest things to teach. Now, in order to make sure that we do that and we don't get too ahead of ourselves and too busy, this is where Brighton and Sussex Medical School comes in. So we are effectively leasing their program from, from them. That's, that's the backbone of our program. And we use their learning outcomes. So Tomorrow's Doctors is a very slim uh, A5 uh, size document. Um, the, the actual curriculum, if it was printed out on paper, would fill about four lever arch files. But we take that and, in, and then um, we convert that and contextualize it for the values of our two universities and um, the, the needs of our local community in Kent and Medway. But we do have opportunities to build in other things. So you talked about digital and digital and innovation is very definitely one of the um, uh, vertical themes that we have and that's being led um, by a doctor called Dr. Robert Stewart, who's been involved in innovation and uh, digital technology innovation uh, in the county and, unit and authority of Kent and Medway for a while now. But again, right from year one, day one of the program, students are learning about that. Now, to give you an example, I mean, I, I don't need to convert you, you're, 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 you're tech people already, but to give you an example of what the profession of medicine, how difficult it is to move these things along, this time last year, before anyone had heard of a, of a market in China and a funny pneumonia, I would stand up and I would talk passionately about how we needed to really speak to the Generation Z medical student and really be technologically um, uh, not, not just competent, but technological advocates for them. 
And I would talk about a really big healthcare provider in America called Kaiser Permanente, which is very big. Their insurance is very expensive. And that means that they have a certain sort of customer comes to them for healthcare. They're very well regarded and they really have put quality at the heart of a lot of what they do. Back in 2017, just over 50% of their consultations were virtual. And everyone said, well, this is because you have your your customer are, are rich white collar professionals. This is because you are the sort of healthcare system that you are. This is because you are streets ahead and you are hand in glove with Silicon Valley. That is just that's never going to happen over here in Joe, Joe Public um, uh, Medicare type hospitals. And I would get the same reception here. And at the same time, Kaiser Permanente was saying, by 2018, we want 72% of our consultations to be virtual. And we and they said 72% because they thought that 28% of all consultations needed a, the doctor to touch the patient in some way, shape, or form. In the past six months, in Kent and Medway, over 80% of GP consultations have been virtual. Okay, so, you know, the pandemic's horrible. The virus is horrible. I really wish we hadn't needed to go through it, but this is like war and the pandemic has moved mm -hmm. the, the, the norm five years ahead in five months. We're not going backwards. So we are teaching our students today, not just face-to-face -face communication. We are teaching them how to take a consultation over a, over, over a, a secure um, digital connection. Yeah, it's been amazing, the transformation last last six months. And and you've been starting a medical school. Uh, I know. Uh, that. <laughs> was, it, was there a moment? <laughs> You thought, why, why, why? <laughs> you got a pandemic, why me? The pandemic cutting in just as you're starting a medical school. Yeah, I think everybody's probably had moments where they thought, really? Oh, no, what next? How could it get any worse? And then, um, you know, um, when the when the pandemic actually kicked off, of course, we, we didn't have any medical students, but I did have 4,000 other health students. Right. Um, so um that's that has been a hugely um challenging and interesting six months in in um ensuring the the continuation of those programs which obviously is learning that uh is coming to really to really good use um and i think that, you know that's one of the strengths that we have uh that we we have other health programs as well the four thousand students i guess a lot of listeners won't realize that um at Canterbury Christchurch has got a long history of nursing degrees and uh, other other health profession degrees flowing through it. So you had you had that as a bedrock. It's not a completely. Yeah. Chris mentioned interprofessionalism and, and collaboration and how important how important that is and the you know a collaborative approach to leadership. All of those things are absolutely critical and they they are principles that we've had in our um, portfolio. From a very very early stage, so we, we started health education in '89, um, and then quickly progressed into pre-registration programs. I think the, the faculty itself at the moment has got something like 46 different programs. So you know we really do cater for a very very wide 
um, number of, of professions, and that included uh, medicine. We have we have a institute for medical sciences that you know was was part of the scaffolding, if you like, underpinning that we gradually put into place over time, so that when we were in a position to put forward a, a bid for a medical school, actually we could evidence. Um, you know, some input into medical education. Now, clearly, it wasn't primary, the primary qualification, which is potentially one of the biggest challenges. Um, you know, the five-year program is a, is a huge challenge. But you know, we, we've done a lot of postgraduate medical programs, um, simulations, GPs, uh, helping GP leadership programs. There's, there's a whole suite of things that we were doing. Um, similarly, the University of Kent were doing um, programs which also had medical um, students on them, not the post-registration medical, medical um, practitioners as students. So, uh, you know, that was, that was really important. Um, but it, there is no doubt that actually having an undergraduate medical school uh, has been a significant learning experience for both universities. But it's great. It, it enriches mm. the experience for our current health students. You know, interprofessional education is clearly very, very important. Uh, we've had four or five different iterations of that actually in our programs now. And the fact that we've finally got pre-registration medical students now uh, interacting with all of the other healthcare students in the first year of study um, you know, it really sets us up very well for the future where professions understand each other much better and can work together better. We had the first IPE event. It was a safeguarding event where the KMMS students um, joined students from across the faculty. What's a, an IPE? It's a professional education event. Right, okay. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been in the NHS 15 years. I've nearly got all the acronyms <laughs> down. That, that was a new one. <laughs> that's that, that's a problem with acronyms isn't it it's a language of its own but yeah so that that that's you know that's a, another milestone and there are going to be milestones gosh probably every other month that's for the next five years i'm guessing um so yeah we're all on this learning journey together there's no doubt about that how are the students get along yeah so um the students the students are great um, we've got 108 of them and um, we opened on the 7th of September. So just looking, this is our one month anniversary. And um, we really we really tried very, very hard to get as much face time with them as possible in the, in the first week. And that was a very odd experience. It wasn't like any other university induction week I'd ever done. It had to be socially distanced. So our cohort of 108 were split across two really large lecture theatres. One of them, 60, 60 of them were in a 500-seater lecture theatre, and the other remaining 40 were in a lecture wow. theatre of about 300. And they sit with two seats empty between them and the entire row behind them empty. And then the next row is staggered so that they're sort of like in triangles. So they, like, they can't even touch each other. And... Um, they're all wearing masks and you're wearing a mask and it's really, really hard to get any sort of feeling of um, uh, atmosphere or even mm. humanity into the room. But they had an opportunity. They got to meet with people uh, more closely in smaller groups. This was before the rule of six, but they were still in smaller groups. 
and they really valued it. Um, and um, we got really good feedback on on uh, th that recognised that the students could see that we'd um, that, that we'd really push the bow tight. One of the things that will always always stick in my mind, and it is very very relevant to to where we find ourselves, is that everyone has said everyone has said um, we'll put we'll put we'll, we'll we'll move to virtual teaching. We'll put as much teaching as possible online, and we always said at KMMS that one of the things that we would do is have a digital first strategy. But one of the things that we also have a mission to do is to bring in people into the course and ultimately the profession of medicine who come from backgrounds that wouldn't normally be associated with doing medicine, never mind going to university. And in the UK, the main distinguishing factor between going to university and studying medicine and not is your socioeconomic background. And it's not the only one. This is a very intersectional problem. But the main one is, the, is if you come from a less well-off background, you are less likely to either study the A-levels that you need to go to medicine or, or, or get the grades. And one of the things that's then contingent on that is something that we generically call digital poverty. And over the summer, in recognition of the fact that um, we uh, were going to put so much teaching online and that we had said we would always do this, but this issue of digital poverty might be a problem, was that one of our benefactors let us use a unconditional grant of £200,000 to buy iPads for our students. And that's not just this year, that's every year for this year and the next four years. So, for, so our first five years, they'll all get an iPad. Now, to walk around the lecture theatre and give someone an iPad, some of those reactions, they were really, really profound. We had people telling us that they had never, ever been given a brand new digital device of that value mm. just for them. Okay, so you're talking about people for whom the family digital access is uh, uh, an old laptop or a desktop that has to be shared. It's in. It's in. It's not in their bedroom. It's in the kitchen or the the, the sitting room or whatever. And to be given that device, that was transformative for them. So now what we're doing is we are delivering vast amounts of teaching and we know that our students can access it. We know where they live. They're mostly in university accommodation, which is good internet access and they can access it. We've got over that hurdle. So now what we're seeing with our students is that when it comes to running a seminar, the students are setting up the iPad in the kitchen and then the six of them that are living in their social bubble, they're all, they're all in the kitchen. They're setting up their own study group and sitting around the screen, talking to themselves, interacting. And, the, and you know, again, this is transformative. This wouldn't have happened without the pandemic, but this is absolutely transformative. And this, you know, the faculty are loving it. There's the inevitable problems of this button doesn't work or that's a bit clunky or, you know, nobody taught me to do that. All of that, that, you know, yes, we'll, we'll get that out of the way. But the faculty are already coming back and saying, this feels new, this feels exciting, this feels like it's working. 
And, and the students are telling us, yes, you know, it's not, hard, it's not what we thought. It's not what we expected. Mm-hmm. It may or may not be better. We're waiting to see, but we can work yeah. with this. And we right. recognize that you're trying. It's incredible how people have adapted in all sorts of ways. I mean, not just your students, but I just see people all, all, all over the place have adapted. You know, it's obviously not been a great thing to have happen to any of us, but there's definitely been some some strange benefits that have, that have popped out of this. I, I think you're absolutely right, Kevin. Again, you know, one would never wish the pandemic to have happened, but actually, and, and working or, or rather living at work is not necessarily uh, healthy in itself, but seeing, seeing that people are real, seeing that they have children, they have dogs, um, seeing that they have a questionable <laughs> taste in wallpaper. We've all got white backgrounds, so I can say that. Um, you know, you know, that's it, it has changed um, the, the way that we see our colleagues. Yeah. I, I, I'm very much, I got a foot in sort of two worlds because obviously we do a lot of remote work. We've got a developer in Poland and, we, you know, when it comes to software, it doesn't really matter where you, where you are. We've even got the, our CTO. She lives on the Isle of Wight which is essentially an up country, <laughs> right? It's over the sea. Um, so we're used to remote working, but there's, I, I'm a very extroverted person. I think I get my energy from other people. And um, I found it really hard being uh, isolated and, and kept away. And it's, it's that balance thing. You know, I'm an advocate of, um, we've had this social distancing for all this time. Uh, when, when, when we finally emerge from this, hopefully, you know, with vaccines and things, um, that we should have mandatory hugging <laughs> for a while just to, to redress the balance. A lot of people hate that idea. <laughs> like, oh, wait, you know? like, just worried that my kids will grow up in a world where they Have you tried hugging a tree in, in the interim? A tree? Yeah, I've got some plants around me. I should give that a go. It's good oxygen. And get, fig, fig the dog. Give him a hug. It is, but you know that's that's one of the things about tech, isn't it? Um, the um, I I I'm, I'm probably in the bracket of uh, having to accelerate five years in five months. You know, in relation to that mm. tech, I, I, I'm uh, I I understand what I understand, and I know there are large gaps that I don't understand. And 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 for me, this is this absolutely has been transformative. But I have to say, I cannot bear being in meetings when I cannot see people's faces. Um, you know, so mm. I, I I always think it's much nicer to have that. Um, you, you, I know you can't pick up all of the clues about the impact of what you're saying, but you can at least pick up some of the clues uh, when you're actually face to face. So I have to say, I do, I do like, um, I do prefer video calls to telephone calls nowadays. Mm, definitely. As medical professionals, what is one piece of advice that you give to those just starting out in a career in healthcare? As a nurse, never underestimate the impact of your interactions. Um, never underestimate that what what you will be doing, how you will impact on an individual, a team, or a community. Um, you you just have. I think you know you can go into a healthcare professional career thinking that you're, you know, it will be something that you're working with an individual. But, you know, there's a, I think it was Gandhi. Gandhi said, be the change you want to be that you wish to see. That's it. Be the change you want to Mm -hmm. see. Uh, But you don't 
as a healthcare professional, I, I think you really fully appreciate the ripple effect of what you do. So I think it, that's something to be mindful of, um, but it's also something to be very proud of, I think, going forward. That would be mine. Very nice. Um, I think for me, um, it would be, and I, 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 can't, I can't find a quotation or I can't think of a quotation off the top of my head, but for me, it would be um, to really take advantage of the, um, the opportunities that a medical healthcare education gives you. Um, I think in the 21st century, um, healthcare is going to be a growing industry, much like tech. Um, with a British healthcare qualification, you can go almost anywhere in the world. Um, there are 164 different medical specialties today. By this time, five years from now, there'll probably be another 12, like robotics or mm. um, artificial intelligence or mm. something like that. And, and you know, for me, um, my medical education, my undergraduate medical degree, I've, I, I, it's allowed me and given me privileged opportunities that without it, I would never have had. And, and being, being cognizant of that and, and taking advantage of it um, is the thing that I would advise people starting like now with. Very nice. That's been great. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking to us. Yeah, thank you very much. We really support what you do. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I'm really, really grateful to, to you both and, and your colleagues who put in this bid. I sincerely believe that it's going to have a huge impact and by the sound of our conversation today is already having an impact mm. on Kent and East Kent and the wider area and that can only be a good thing so thank you very much thank you very much thank you thank you to all our listeners who tuned in to today's episode of Sardisms we really enjoyed having you and hopefully you enjoyed hearing how KMMS is shaping the future for medical practitioners you can find out more about Sard by visiting sardjv.co.uk or send us a tweet on Twitter at Sard JV and use hashtag Sardisms until next time have a great week Thank you.